Welcome to the One Crossing Podcast. Here you can find past sermons along with other exclusive content. Our prayer is that God will move in your life even when you are on the go. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning, Crossing Church. How are you doing this morning? Doing all right. Got a question for you. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Yes, he is. I love hearing that song. I love singing that song and declaring that truth because, you know, every, every angel in heaven is singing that. And it's nice to be a part of that choir because they make you sound really, really good, don't they? It's really, really awesome. And for those of uh, you that were saying, you know, God bless you in your retirement, guess who's preaching today? Just saying, I'm still here. Stop it. So I want to welcome all the campuses that are joining uh, from uh, the three states where we have uh, our location. So thankful for each and every one of you. And if you are crossing inside, uh, we love, we're praying for you and thankful that you get to be a part of our family. We get to be uh, with you in this way. And if you are online, we're thankful for each and every one of you that's joining uh, along with us as well. And uh, we're in full swing now, aren't we? We're there. We're in the Christmas season. And I wonder how many of you have these strict rules on thresholds. Do you have that? Like these rules, like, because uh, I'm kind of a Scrooge, or historically, I've been kind of a Scrooge when that comes to that. Like, we're not allowed in our house to decorate anything for Christmas until after we've eaten Thanksgiving dinner. How many of you have that rule of our locations? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and my wife, she cheats. She cheats all the time. She cheats when it comes to like what she's listening to on the radio in the car. She cheats on the music that maybe be playing in the, in the house. She definitely cheats on Hallmark movies. She's been cheating on that, and she's always working me about getting those out early. Like, it's a nice day outside. You don't know if you're going to have good weather. So you might want to, you know, and I'm like, nope, not, you know, I've just been pretty strong. But I got to tell you, admit something to you, and don't you dare say it's because of retirement, because of your, you know, no, I'm mellowing. I am mellowing in my old age. And, uh, and I'm asking myself this question, why shouldn't it last a little longer? Why shouldn't the Christmas season give us a little bit more? I've been rethinking it. I mean, it's the time when you make time for people, right? And, and, and you make time for people to gather with an attitude of celebration. How, how can that be bad? Why shouldn't there be like more of that? Uh, we, we, uh, it's a time we put on festive clothes. Some of that's not good, your Christmas sweater things, you know, the ties, the weird things. But I mean, like we don't really care because we're feeling festive. We decorate our houses. We practice hospitality. We invite people over that we would not otherwise invite over, right? Because we just have a little more grace, right? We're all working on our smiles. I know they're kind of fakey, but it's my Christmas. Do you have a Christmas smile? Show someone you're sitting with your Christmas smile. Do not judge. This is a time when we honor our elders, right? Because of long-held traditions. And so we, we embrace those traditions because it makes 
makes you feel, connects you, you know, to the past and brings that into the future. We pay special attention to our children and we cherish their happiness during this season of the year, even though it overloads them and in no time they're crying. You know, we still do it. Special music fills our home, fills our cars. We have special services at church. We have special events. We even have special calendars for special events. All the movies we watch have happy endings. Even Die Hard. Even Die Hard has a happy ending, right? So why wouldn't you want that all year long? That's the question I'm asking myself. I know that some of us have a difficult time when it comes to this season of the year because that there's a, there's a pain that we're feeling, someone missing from the table, an empty chair, those kinds of things that really, really hurt. But really, that pain we feel is also reminding us of just how special every moment that we do have is. And we need to cherish those moments, right? So one of those moments happened to me Thanksgiving evening at our house because one of my, my two-year-old a uh, grandson was there, and we pulled out, and he watched for the first time with us Polar Express. <laughs> Come on. I mean, that is a good movie, right? And it has all the right elements of the perfect Christmas movie. It's got the right music. It's got a great story. It's got Tom Hanks. It's got a great theme, too. You know what the theme is? The theme is believe. Well, I tell you, in a, in a world where we, in a culture where we don't trust hardly anything or anyone anymore, it would be nice to have some things to believe in, right? But when we do, when we do believe, it has incredible power, doesn't it? And to think that in some ways, we right now are believing in part of the same story that the people of Israel were believing in literally thousands of years ago, and that story is the same one that we're believing in right now, that's pretty cool. And of course, we finish the story, we know the rest of the story, because it's Jesus Christ is born, right? Jesus Christ is born. Now, before I go into what I'm going to talk about today, which is Jesus the Messiah, I want to I address this word, Jesus Christ is born. Do we understand what that word means? Christ? Do we understand that? Do, are there some people that think that Christ is Jesus' last name? That Jesus, you know, Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and the whole Christ family? I mean, do, is that what some of us might think? Actually, that's not true at all. It's a Greek word. The word Christ is a Greek word translated from a Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word is Mashiach, which means which is Messiah. So when, when we look at that, that, that Hebrew word Messiah, we realize that no, it's not a last name, it's a title. Jesus the Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, that's what we're saying. Jesus the Messiah. Now, it comes from a compilation of Old Testament scriptures. One of those is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. It says, uh, this is God saying this to Moses, who's writing this down, I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their fellow Israelites, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. 
The word actually means, like the, like the exact translation of the word is anointed. So you're actually, when you say Jesus Christ, and you're saying Jesus Messiah, or Jesus the Messiah, you're actually saying Jesus the anointed. Now in Hebrew culture, there were only three positions in life for which you were anointed. Just three. Very important ones, as a matter of fact. It was reserved for prophets, for priests, and for kings. It was done with oil and was poured over the head. Prophets, priests, and kings. But from ancient times, the Israelites believed there was going to be this one person, this super person, that was going to be all three at the same time. There was going to be a person come. He was not only going to be a prophet or a priest, but he was going to be prophet, priest, and king. So this is the place where the Jews placed all their hopes and all their dreams in the super person, and then they watched and they waited. And for all that watching and waiting, I think it's interesting that when the fullness of time came and Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed, actually came, there were so many people that didn't recognize him or completely rejected him. Even though he fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah to perfection with incredible precision, it didn't match a story that people had created in their own heads, that they had developed in their own desires, right? He, he was a prophet because he was gifted in both foretelling and forthtelling in every way. Let me explain that. Right now, as I stand up here and I speak to you, I am actually doing something that could be considered prophecy in both the Old and the New Testament because the word could mean forthtelling, which means to proclaim. So if I'm proclaiming the gospel, in a sense, I'm acting as a prophet. But a prophet was not only someone who proclaimed, he was someone who could actually tell the future. I don't even know where I'm eating lunch. So I can't do that, okay? But Jesus could. As a matter of fact, he could say what was going to happen immediately, what was going to happen in a day or two, what's going to happen in a year, in millennia. He could do that. So he was a, the perfect foreteller and forthteller. So he was a prophet. He was also a priest, which is interesting because the priesthood that existed at the time of Jesus was called the Levitical priesthood because they came after the tribe of Levi. But Jesus wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. So how could he be a priest? Well, there's a more ancient order referred to in the book of Genesis where there was a priest of God most high. His name was Melchizedek. And the book of Hebrews declares that Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he is a priest but of a more ancient order than the present priesthood of that time. And he was a king. And he was a king two ways. He was a king by both pedigree and by divine right. By pedigree, all you have to do is look at Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, and you will see his pedigree. As a matter of fact, Jesus has the only uh, existing genealogy of any Jewish person because it's recorded in the New Testament. All the others were destroyed in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, but we still have 
his genealogy. And you can prove from that genealogy that Jesus indeed was literally the king of the Jews. But he wasn't just a king by pedigree. He was also a king by divine right because he was born of a virgin, the very son of Almighty God. He was even recognized by foreigners. He was recognized by the Magi. You remember the Magi, the wise men that came and delivered their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh? He was recognized by an evil king named Herod. So recognized, in fact, that Herod put out an order to kill all the Hebrew babies two and under so he could snuff out the life of this king by pedigree and divine right. His public ministry was daily proof of this. I mean, thinking about his teaching, his teaching was prophetic. People would hang on his every word. Scripture says he spoke as one with authority, not like their religious leaders of the time. He was prophetic. His priesthood was shown in the way he healed people and in the way he could forgive their sins, right? It was proven in his death and in his resurrection because he was both the priest who offered the sacrifice and he was the sacrifice that was offered for the sins of the world. And his kingdom, even though he declared it was not of this world, it was shown by his authority and his sovereign power over nature. Think about it. Jesus could stand in the prow of a boat and the wind is howling and the waves are are, are coming up and this horrible storm's happening and he could say, peace, be still. And the water would just go flat and the wind would stop. He had power over nature. It It was demonstrated by all of his miracles. But of all those miracles... There's only one, only one miracle that is repeated in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The others may be in one, two, or even three Gospels, but only one appears four times. You know which one it is? It's the feeding of the 5,000. All four Gospels. So let's read it from John chapter 6 together. It says, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to just get a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with Five small barley loaves. That's like going to the Greek restaurant and getting some pita with your hummus. You know what I'm talking about? And two small fish would have been little smoked fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. So it doesn't take into account women and children most scholars believe it was about 20,000 people. Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Can you imagine this? Jesus starts tearing a loaf. Here you go, here you go, here you go, deliver this, here you go. He's tearing, reaches, you know, here's some more, here's some more. It's like it never ends. 
Like it just keeps going. He starts doing the fish. He's tearing the fish up. Pieces of fish going out. Just keeps going. Just keeps going. Keeps going. They had as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Wow. This is unique. This one miracle, this power over nature miracle, is unique in multiple ways. It's the only miracle where someone actually contributes something to what he did. Like this little boy comes up and offers his lunch. It's the only miracle where he asks the disciples questions. Like, uh, where are we gonna, how are we going to feed these people? It's the only miracle where he asks his disciples to do his bidding, have them sit in groups. And he even stipulated how big the groups were supposed to be. It has more people involved than any other miracle that he did. So more people actually witnessed this than any other miracle. And it's the only miracle, and this is the one I want to really drill down on, it's the only miracle where the Israelites attempt to crown him as king. John 6, 14 and 15 says this, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is a prophet who has come, is the prophet who has come into the world. Stop right there. This is the prophet. Now, they, there were prophets, lots of them. But they didn't say a prophet. They said the prophet. The prophet who has come into the world. You know what they're doing. They're seeing this miracle and they're saying, you're him. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're that super person. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the anointed. Verse 15 says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. <clears throat> now that's the one thing I really want us to look at. Think about this. Think about all of the people and all of the things that these people had seen and heard and experienced being around Jesus. They'd witnessed healings. They had witnessed him do all sorts of amazing things. Like he had raised the dead. And they'd heard incredible teaching. And yet, none of those things moved them to take this step until this moment to make him king. Why? Why is that? So if you're a Bible scholar, you could say, well, there's that prophecy fulfillment of the Messiah in Ezekiel chapter 34 that said that he would feed his people like a shepherd feeds his sheep. Yeah, but it, it's less than that. It wasn't that theological. Maybe some people who had an understanding of Jewish history would say, well, that reminds me of the story of Moses and how God fed their ancestors every day in the wilderness with the manna, the bread that fell from heaven, and the quail that would come and just land. and You could pick them up off the ground. That's a great argument, but no, it was less than that. Well, what was it? 
It was this. That they could be fully fed and have plenty of leftovers with no effort of their own. That's it. That's a leader that everyone can get behind. That's somebody you want for a king. Someone who would meet my immediate need in the most basic way. If you're wondering if that's true, they proved it in the very next set of verses in John chapter 6, where they asked for their next meal the next morning. You know, it's estimated that it would take 30,000 pounds of food to fill that many people. Now, if Jesus could do that, and he could do it over again and over again, what couldn't he provide? That's what they thought. Now, look at the 26th and the 27th verse and how Jesus outs that. He says, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. But isn't that just like us? I mean, we could say, well, isn't that just like them? But isn't that just like us? Aren't we the ones who are more inclined to reach for lower things instead of higher things, for the more immediate things, the next shiny object? Aren't we the ones who vote for people who promise to give us the next obvious thing, but we don't honor the one who will provide what we truly need for life and eternity? Is that us? The thing is, he knows that about you, and he knows it about me. And he still loves you. And he still loves me. In John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, it says this, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He knows this about us. Listen, they wanted to make Jesus king. But Jesus didn't come to earth to be crowned by sinful people. He came to be crucified for sinful people. Oh, he was crowned. Make no mistake. He was crowned, but not with gold. He was crowned with thorns. He was robed, but not for majesty, but for mockery. He was lifted up, but not on a throne. He was lifted up on a tree. And he was proclaimed, but not in honor, but instead disdain. And his royal blood wasn't protected. Instead, it was spilt out. And his life wasn't defended. It was discarded. But he was crowned in heaven by his heavenly father and he was robed by the angels in splendor and all heaven and nature sing of his truth and his grace and the wonders of his love and the answer to the question of humankind's greatest need 
is right here in this chapter. John 6, 31, 32, and 35. Jesus says, Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Listen. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me, believes in me, will never be thirsty. This is what God was doing behind the curtain. He was being the king that we needed, not the king that we wanted. Now, you know, I've been realizing that, just how faithful God is and how he is at answering prayers. I shared two answered prayers with you last week, how God just incredibly answers prayers in miraculous ways. But listen, I think that some of God's best answers have come from prayers I never prayed. I wish I had, but I just didn't have the faith or the perception to pray right prayers. As a matter of fact, some of God's greatest answers to prayers haven't been yeses. They've been noes. Because He didn't want me to settle for less. They came from the patience that he had for me when I got mad for not getting what I wanted in that moment. I wonder if it's that way for you too. (laughs) I want to challenge you today. I want you to challenge you to do something that in this day and age and in the culture we live in is extremely hard to do. I want to challenge you to believe. Just like that little boy on the train in his bathrobe in Polar Express. I want to challenge you to believe. To believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The Christ. The Anointed One. To believe that He is the One that the Old Testament spoke about. That He is the One who perfectly fulfilled all of those prophecies, that He is the one who came, who lived, who died, who was buried, who rose again, who's coming back to believe. I challenge you today to believe that He knows you. Not us, not the world, you. I challenge you to believe that He knows you. And that He loves you. I challenge you to believe that He is telling the truth and not lying when He says He loves you. I challenge you to believe that He came for you, that He died for you, that He was buried and He rose again on the third day for you, that He places His Holy Spirit within you and that someday He's coming back to take you home. I want you to believe that He's here right now in this place. 
to take Jesus at his word and believe him when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Do you believe? I challenge you to believe. Maybe for the very first time. And I'm praying that maybe for the first time, like that little fictional boy on that train, you go like this. And when you can't hear anything, you stop and you say, I believe. I believe. I believe. And then maybe for the first time in your life, you will hear the bell ring. We're moving to the time of decision. Thank you for joining us. A special thank you to those of you that choose to give to this ministry. It's because of your generosity that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit thecrossing.net forward slash podcast for more information. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, tagging One Crossing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.